realwatersports.com is our partner for today's show and uh, we always talk about their surfboard inventory 1500 board inventory Pizels, lost maurice cole ricky carroll roger hines all sorts of boards including special collaborations that are unique to real water sports but they've also just sweetened the deal you can save 15 percent on surfboard accessories including wetsuits fins traction leashes board bags with any surfboard purchase. Just add it to your cart and it'll automatically calculate the savings. So put a surfboard in the cart and when you add anything else, you get 15% off those accessories. And again, I've told you in the past, but they've unlocked the key to shipping. So Real Water Sports is based in North Carolina, but they can ship you a surfboard anywhere in the world for one low flat fee. So it's pretty incredible and the board is guaranteed to arrive at your door blemish free. So get a new board, save 15% on surfboard accessories, realwatersports.com. What qualifies as surf content nowadays? Who's making it? And is there a known path to make a living doing it? The WSL shuttered WSL Studios earlier this month, so if they can't figure it out, who can? Accessible technology has made it easier than ever to make content independently, but again, even if you make something great, how do you find an audience for that content, or even more complicated, a paycheck? It seems that even our surf filmmaking heroes, Taylor Steele, Kai Neville, Dana Brown, they're all making a living outside of surf films at this point. And yet, 100 Foot Wave, perhaps the most successful surf documentary in recent memory, was directed by a guy named Chris Smith, a non-surfer. And that, by the way, has been renewed for season two on HBO. So it's a complicated path. And today's guest is someone who sits right at the nexus of this space as the head of partnerships for Campsite Media House. His decades of experience gives him technical expertise, but his passion is for the art of finding the specific pathway and platforms for a project to access its greatest audience. You know that Sonny Garcia documentary, Death and Taxes, that we have been hearing about for a decade? Well, our guest is working to make sure that you see that, regardless of what platform you pay a subscription for. And this is important because if he can access you, the audience who wants to see the film, then the filmmaker can hopefully see a return on their investment and guess what? Make another film. So the fact that audiences are fractured and dispersed onto dozens of different platforms makes solving the equation incredibly complex but it also allows entry points for filmmakers where in previous years and decades, there were barriers. So our guest today has a number of surf projects in his hands right now. So I figured that it was a great time to hear the status of these and hear the complications and the opportunities that exist for surf content. So my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Campsite Media's Greg Jacobs. Enjoy. 
Why it's a, why it's a good young uh, creative filmmaker. We're doing a project with Marty Hoffman and why it is the archive uh, bleed, if you will. Oh, okay. And so he's been really good. And then I work with a guy named Paul Tablieb, who I know you know as well. And so Paul and Wyatt are working together on some stuff. So it's just, it's, it's cool to see this young talent making, making their way through, you know, making surf docs is a challenging, hard to monetize business. Uh, but I like that way, you know, Wyatt did it and it was spoons. And then we were doing a project with Dana Brown that Wyatt helped me on. And so it's just been a nice, anyway, he's just a good kid. Well, that wasn't where I was going to start the conversation, but we might as well, since you brought it up, um, monetization, monetization of surf films. I'll explain the old model for the listeners. And then you can kind of explain what it looks like today. Cause I'm not even sure what it looks like today, yeah. but the old, the old model was when I was growing up, I'd save 30 bucks at a time. And every 30 bucks I got, I would go down to my local surf shop and I would buy a surf video. Yeah. And those surf videos were made, they would take a year to make maybe a year and a half, you know, Taylor Steele is probably yep. the most famous of yep. that era. Yep. You would set off with a crew of the momentum generation around the world. Yep. He would fund that. Yep. And then at the end of the year, 18 months, he would have a surf film that yep. he would sell for $30 a unit, yep. make a little bit of profit enough to go out and film the next batch of films. And the internet disrupted that whole model. Now there's kind of a model where you can just monetize YouTube, which yep. uh, Jamie O'Brien, Ben Gravy yep. do, and Instagram. Yep. But there still are kind of um, more cinematic films being made. And those used to be made just for the brands. The brands yep. would set those out as a commercial. John yep. John Florence famously yep. funded View from a Blue Moon yep. for $2 million and yep. had like a cinematic release. Um, what is what is that landscape now? What is your, uh, what is Campsite Media? What's your role with Campsite Media? Great. Well, um, first off, I thanks for being, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked to be on this podcast. Again, like I said, I'm a listener of it. So if you look back, you know, I always say the two founding fathers of adventure entertainment, I think that's kind of what we can call it, is Bruce Brown and Warren Miller. Those were the oh. two. And they would narrate the films, you know, in the theater and you would go and there was a celebratory feel to it. Then you kind of fade to black, fade up. And then you had a company called Video Action Sports, VAS. And they were a company that would actually put the videos, VHS in your local video stores. And so they did that for a while. And a guy named Danny Grant was running that. And then so then it, it did change. And so now you are in a situation where brands want, wanted to be in that space, but they found a hard time monetizing it. And I remember talking to Bob Hurley about, um, about John John's film. And I know the guy named Kurt Morgan made it or directed it. And he was the same guy that did a couple of films for us when I was at Red Bull. We did a snowboarding film called Art of Flight. And he was the director on that a great filmmaker, but I was talking to Bob and he just said, you know, it's challenging to monetize these. So a brand will put the money in and you got to figure out kind of how you get it out there. So what I've found, because right now we've got a Sunny Garcia project that we have out to the main market. And we have then a surf film that Marty Hoffman is supporting about lifeguards. And then there's three or four other series to it. So if you take a surf film, you, A, you do need partnership dollars to at least prop it up enough to be able to get it to market. And what I mean by market is I always use different phrases. So you've got now the new phrase, I call it the streamers, but you have platforms and networks. So platforms being the streamers, networks being the networks. And the challenge is with the platforms is, and the networks 
they they have a hard time understanding the reach of a surf themed project. You have to keep in mind that a streamer wants to drive a product to their to their platform to simply uptick subs and subscribers. So if it doesn't have a big reach, it's hard for them to justify putting it there. And you're typically in the room pitching network execs, network execs, a property that they may not quite get or is not mainstream enough for them. And so you kind of fall back into this niche. And so what I've found, there's less and less doing it. So there's less clutter in the space. And I think what I'm hoping is that if we more kind of create a, a, a community of doing just a few projects and putting as many resources around it as possible, we can tell those stories in the market. If you're a young filmmaker coming up through the ranks, and I'll use Wyatt as an example, and he may listen to this at some point, you know, it's really hard to be a young filmmaker and get a film and get it off the ground. And yes, you can, you know, uh, tease it out on YouTube and you can generate some revenue there. But if you don't have scale, you get the whole whole picture of it. So what I try to do is find an augmented model between some partnership dollars, a theatrical release, and then doing the streamers uh, and the network partners. And so it's a very scientific approach that I take to it. And um, if you look at how a project is windowed out, and that's the phrase that, that we know we use in the business a lot. So the step one is you need to still window it out to traditional theaters. That's still part of that process. And there's a company called Adventure Entertainment. And they're probably the guys that do the theatrical release. So you take 150 different screens throughout the country and you start to window that property in. So you give it about 90 days in a theatrical incubator where it's out and you're driving traffic. And it kind of goes back to that old school model where you're using the La Paloma or you're using Lido or you're using other theaters. And then you kind of blanket over that a regal cinema footprint. And now you've generated some visibility. So that visibility from a theatrical standpoint also helps you with film festivals and conversely so. Film festivals and theatrical can sit adjacent to each other without cannibalizing each other. So I'm a big fan of film festival reach and I'm a big fan of the fact that there's actually surf film festivals and the coast being one, which is really last two, I think this will be a third year coming up. They've done that. And you know, the guys there at the coast film festival, you know, they had an idea to do it and everybody goes, Ooh, launching a surf film festival is challenging, but they've been able to show how it can go. And there's kind of broadened out a little bit more outside of just surf. So if you have film festivals and you have the film tour and you run that for a period of time and you let that film festival kind of be an always on strategy, then you move immediately into a streamer or, or an over the top platform. And whether that is a ad supported streaming service like a Tubi or a Roku, or whether that's a straight you know, licensed uh, platform like a Netflix or like a Amazon Prime or even to a Hulu. And then you, so you say, okay, well, I'm going to go 90 days in theatrical. Then I'm going to window it out into the over the top platforms. I'm going to give that a longer window, a six to nine month window. At that point, I'm going to now see if I can move it into traditional network. And I'll use an example of outside TV, even though they've got an emerging digital play, they still have a linear footprint. NBC Sportsnet, when it was around, had a linear footprint that would work. Linear, of course, is, is a more challenging market for you, but it needs to still be plugged in as part of this overarching arc of windowing. So theatrical with the film festivals, moving to platforms and streaming, moving then to network. And then what you can do at that point is also move it into airline in-flight. And we've seen that airline in-flight works quite well. We did a project, which was a tribute to Bruce Brown. It was called A Life of Endless Summers. And that was on Hawaiian Airlines. And uh, 
it was actually funny because more people found it on Hawaiian Airlines than they did, you know, through the other streaming platforms that it was on. It was on Amazon and several of them. So you have to look at and say, okay, if that's going to be my windowing model, where I'm going to go theatrical, streamers, network, airline in-flight, and then brand-centric owned and operated channels. So many times a brand will simulcast it on their own .com or they'll drive to that .com to do it. A brand needs to wants to do a project to simply drive awareness and product sales. So when we were at Red Bull, we did it to simply drive awareness of the can. And so when we did Art of Flight, we had Quicksilver on board. And what they did, which was very interesting, is they have a QR code on their product. And so you can actually download the film off of iTunes for that. And so now you take the iTunes or what I call the transactional TVOD situation, TVOD space. So the TVOD space plugs in kind of right between theatrical and right before the streamers. And so that TVOD space is there for a downloadable or a download to rent. So it's TVOD or, or it's an electronic download, ET, ET you know, again, uh, electronic streaming or whatever it is, but it's the download off of, uh, off of YouTube. So that works for a period of time, but less and less are going to YouTube to download or download to rent a film. They're actually finding it on their local streaming platform. So you really look at the overall kaleidoscope of where it goes, a brand needs to understand or get a feel for, it's gonna have an always on reach for about two to three years until it kind of windows its, its window out. You will generate most of your revenue in the first eight months of any film through theatrical, through your streamers and through your transactional downloads from an iTunes or a Google Play. Once it gets, then it has its, its streaming life and it just has this, you know, it carries on, it has a long tail to it, but you're going to see your revenue drop off after nine, after month nine. And if you're going to get into this business to, you'll make your money back. But if you're looking at this to make a 30 or 35% return on a film, it's going to be incredibly challenging. Um, the other piece of it is, it's, is that you have, we have what I call platform fatigue. And there's a guy named Don Meek who was running Fuel TV for a while after it went to this digital space. And Don and I talk about, you know, digital uh, platform fatigue all the time, because if my wife and I are looking for something and we go, okay, well, let's, let's see if it's on Netflix. Well, it's not there. Well, let's go to Amazon Prime. Well, it's not there. Well, let's go to uh, Hulu and it's not there. At some point, we're going to have just fatigue. I'm not going to keep looking for it at that point. It's become too hard to find. And so if it's really important that the step one is if you're going to do a film or a documentary or a, a mini series, you have to make sure that the brand's communication and marketing team support your communication and marketing team. So as a company, we've got a full marketing team that we have kind of inherited from Red Bull's film team. And so our team and the brand's team work together to drive awareness and promotion and traffic. And if a brand, a brand can have a downloadable code or somehow use the film on their.com, it doesn't really cannibalize the other windows because it's such a narrow niche. Yeah. Um, so in doing that, the only place you get into a little bit of a jam is that sometimes a film festival will want the premiere and it will not want it to be out on streaming platforms. And conversely, so stream platforms don't want too long of a theatrical run until it gets to them. And when COVID happened and you had everything flipped upside down where you were doing this uh, kind of simultaneous uh, stream and release because the theaters were you know closed or small traffic, you kind of shifted this window. It's always been a traditional window that's lasted for a really long time, but all of a sudden they started to collapse the windows, which is the phrase that I would use. They collapsed the windows and streaming and theatrical happened at the same time or even streaming took precedent. And so that kind of became a rattling model. And one of my good friends, the guy named Danny Grant, 
So Danny Grant was at the Orchard and the Orchard became 1091 Media and then 1091 Media was just acquired by Chicken Soup for the Soul. So Danny, just like Adventure Entertainment, Danny is the guy that takes most of these docs, these theme docs, and puts them out into the market. So he's the one that has the relationships from Apple TV all the way through Netflix and the network partners. So he's a one-stop shop that the, the, the clients that he has, the streamers, the networks, platforms that he has know that Danny has a portfolio of content that he's going to come out with every year. So he's a really strategic place for us to be because if you're one guy going out, trying to pitch this on a market, on a network by network or platform by platform basis, it becomes really challenging. In the olden days, when we did Art of Flight back in 2012 or 13, we were, we had the luxury to actually license the film for a set of money. So we actually could license it on an exclusive basis to Netflix for a premium price. That has changed now because back to platform fatigue, networks or platforms realize that an exclusivity and paying a premium for that exclusivity for a piece of content that's not their own content or is so valuable that it's worth that money, they'll take a non-exclusive, uh, you know, they'll pay a non-exclusive fee, which lowers the value of what you're gonna get. So your only goal is to try to get a non-exclusive fee from several different platforms and link that money together, plus your theatrical, plus your brand supported uh, funding. And now with that overall model of finding these monies in these different windows allows you to start to justify the PL of a property. Got it. Um, so what, so is uh, campsites role, the role of a producer and distribution? And then at what stage do you get involved in a project? So what, um, so our traditional DNA core is, with production. We're a production okay. house. So we've got a large stage and we do that. The production business is just challenging. Anybody can be a producer and so, or, or, you know, can be in that space. And so you look and you're saying, okay, I'm going to pitch and I'm going to, I'm going to work with a brand to do a brand centric piece of content. Okay. Well, other production companies can pitch the same thing. doesn't make anybody unique. Everybody's going to have a red. Everybody's going to shoot at the same level. Everybody's going to be that good. They're going to be innovative enough and all that. So you can't compete against just pure content. If you're not making good content, you're not going to survive in the business period. Where we at Campsite have a hybrid model, the other half of our business, which I lead, is our partnerships and our sponsorship side and our distribution side. So Mavericks came to us and they were just, you know, they just rebuilt or relaunching Mavericks and a company called Mavericks Ventures, a woman named Elizabeth Cresson and Paul Tablieb came to us and said, we need help going to the market to secure partnerships for Mavericks. So now we have kind of this event sponsorship team that goes out and we basically, you know, pitch events or films for a brand money. And it only works if you have a Rolodex and if you're known for that. So brands, you know, brands want to say no. They want anybody at a, you know, at a senior VP of marketing or CMO or a VP of marketing level want to take a step back and go, okay, I really want to be careful if I can deploy any of my marketing budget to this to make sure it's the smart, right move. So you're also pitching one widget. And so you're pitching it to a brand and you don't know their marketing strategy. You don't know where they are in their fiscal year. You don't know if they're into business planning 2023 yet. You, you, so you're really putting one idea out there and hoping that your timing, the idea, the right person at the right time, it resonates and then you can plug it in. So from Campsite, I, I like the fact that we're a boutique partnership and event monetization or marketing group. 
And when I was at Red Bull, I was head of distribution and partnerships for a few years. And then they wanted to change my title and change the whole team's title to, I was head of monetization or SVP of monetization. And I always th thought that was funny for the first few days of that name, because, wow, it's a pretty hardcore name to use monetization in your title. I'm going to come in, I'm going to try to steal your wallet, right? But it, um, but I think that has softened over time. And so I guess what gives me solace and I go to market. And one of the guys on our team is a guy named Mark Carter. And Mark Carter was a, an SSA surfer and he was pro for a while. I think Bob Hurley was one of his first partners. And so Mark Carter was at NBC for a long period of time. And Mark Carter sold uh, you know, motocross and everything for, for NBC. So Mark said something to me the other day, which I love. He said, it's our opportunity to bring a brand, an idea that they might not otherwise know exists. So okay. yes, you're going to get emails that are not returned. Yes, you're going to get a lot of no's, but you only need one or two and you've got it, you've got it to work. So I have to rely on the fact that I'm offering you an idea. Here's Mavericks or here's a film on Sonny Garcia or here's a project on lifeguards, Hawaiian lifeguards. Maybe, just maybe this resonates with you at some point. So that is what motivates me to get up every morning, send the notes, try to be clever in my outreach, try to be strategic in using my LinkedIn to understand where the person's lands now, how long have they been there, you know, and then it gets just a network. Every, you know, you know, a lot of people, there's a certain uh, group or tribe of us that just knows what each other's for. And if you have a good reputation and you prove you can do it, then I think that's, that's a key piece. And I'll kind of end maybe on, on this. If you get a young filmmaker in the space who wants to do a film, they want to go make it first. That's the fun part is making it. The hard part is monetizing it. The hard part is generating any ROI against it. So what I try to do is when we go to a market, I guarantee the film's going to be released. Right now we have a film about Hawaiian lifeguards. It will be released on June 21st, summer solstice in Hawaii at the Hawaii theater. And then it will window out to 151 different theaters throughout mainland US and then have an international play. I know it's going to be on the screen, no question. What, so if I was waiting to fund it by a partner to then maybe potentially possibly get it out in the market, that becomes where I'm selling vaporware. So I yeah. have to guarantee the distribution for the partnerships because at any point in a meeting, the first thing a partner is going to say is, where is it going to be seen? What's the CPM against it? What are the butts and seats? What are the, what's the model? And if I don't have that, I can't continue the conversation. So I have to have the distribution plan locked, then talk to the partnerships and try to plug those two in together. Partnerships can kind of, or the distribution can kind of move in, in tandem with the partnership breach, but I have to be you know, able to say, we're working with Danny Grant's team at, at, uh, at Chicken Soup for the Soul, or we're working with Adventure Entertainment. We have that distribution and I've overseen, you know, I've produced you know, 20 of these and they've, or 25 of these, and they've made their way to market and they've made money. And so that track record of, you know, I always say it's the enthusiasm of the uninitiated. If you haven't been grinding it out and doing it, you think it's easy. And this is the really, really hard thing to do. I do it probably because there's a passion for it. I do it because I think these films need to be made and I think they need to be told and Mavericks needs to be relaunched. You know, Mavericks has had a little bit of a challenging past over the last few years that, I know people probably listening know the backstory on that. So revitalizing that brand and getting it back out and getting the event to happen and then putting shoulder programming to it. So it's a tough business, but the fact that we've done it, the fact I know how to do it, and I think the stories need to be told. And so that's how I look at it. 
I think a lot of what sounds exciting about your role specifically is just that um, it's ever changing. Like that landscape is ever changing. So you're, and you're kind of dictating some of the changes while you're working. And so that sounds exciting, a reason to get up every day. It, it, it is, but the, yes, it, the industry is, you know, everybody says, well, the industry is changing. The industry is changing rapidly. And I was on a panel, I don't know, right before COVID. And I said, if somebody tells you that they understand the media business today, they're lying to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you look at a guy named Rob Ferris, who runs the day-to-day operations of outside TV. I've known Rob all went back to my NASCAR days. Rob will be the first to tell you that it's constantly pivoting on what we're trying to do. And do you, so now you do take a piece of content. So you're going to create a digital platform like outside. Do you take a piece of content and how much do you put in front of the paywall versus how much you put behind the paywall? And then if I go behind the paywall and I have you know, problem with paywalls is I can get out after 30 days. And if you look at Apple TV, for example, they've got some good content, but you can consume that content fairly quickly. So in the yeah. first 60 days of being on Apple TV, you've absorbed much of that content. And so now you're at a point where can I now get out of that relation, get out of that thing? And so you have, you know, um, you have a churn rate where they're going to, they're going to kick out of their, their subscription and, and getting them back is difficult. So churn rates for any uh, over the top or any digital platform is one thing to really be careful of because once they're out, they're really hard to get them back. Totally. And so it's that really fine balance. How much do we want in front of the paywall? How much can we put behind the paywall? And what is the price point on the paywall? Is it $4.99? Is it $9.99? Is it $11? What's it going to be? Because you're going to have back to platform fatigue. You know, if you look at, well, I'm going to cut the cable, I'm going to cut the cord and I'm going to go nail cable. So I'm going to watch YouTube and I'm going to pay the $14.99 for YouTube without ads. But then I got Hulu and I got Netflix and I get, next thing I know, I got a $100 cable bill over the top bill, which is the same as my cable bill. So I've got to now pull back on where we are. So the fast model, which is, free, what free streaming ad supported television. I'm butchering that Don Meek would, would correct me on that uh, where I could like linear television, but on the, on the digital footprint. So yeah. I'm going to sit through the ads because I don't want to pay a monthly subscription. And that's model is actually working quite well, surprisingly. So, so we're going all the way back around to the early days of linear television where you're, you're sitting through the ads, but I'm doing it because I, I have, you know, revenue fatigue on what I'm paying for the platforms. Well, and those ads are much more targeted now too. So I think it's a more efficient model, but um, it's interesting. I think now is the best time to be a consumer of the content, but it's also the best time to be a filmmaker. Um, When I was young and I explained that $30 a unit model, there was a huge barrier of entry to get into filmmaking if you were an aspiring director, Um, time and cost, right? And as the consumer, there was fewer options. I feel like now there's more options for the consumer. The quality is a lot higher and the individual uh, director, let's say aspiring filmmaker, they can make a film on their own right now with their iPhone or whatever. There's a bunch of examples of that. And I, there was also a period of time where there was a bunch of white noise in the market. So if there was a great film, you might not necessarily see it. And that's where the film festivals, I think have done a great job. The guys at Florida films festivals specifically curating stuff that is out there that I just happen to have not seen because there is white noise. But I think now we're in a new era where you can stand out. The uh, truly talented filmmakers are getting recognized because you guys exist, the film festival exists. And so Wyatt 
can Wyatt Daly can find a way to make a living. Whereas yeah. previously they, he might've just ended up being a, you know, something else other than something a filmmaker. Else, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, yeah. So yes, it's the, it's a more frictionless space to get yeah. your work published. Totally. Anybody can self-publish, you know, I mean, I think about back in the, you know, back in the olden days where there were three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, right. Then of course, Fox kind of popped into the scene as before cable. I mean, that was it. That's the only yeah. place you had a home. And so my family owned a television production and syndication company and it was started in 1970. And so, you know, I always joke that if I owned, if my family owned a cleaners or a car wash, I'd be doing that. Or if we were lawyers, I'd be in the law firm, but we just happen to have a television production and syndication company. So we would make the film or show or TV show, and it would be supported by an Anheuser-Busch or by a, an Audi or in the early days of 1984. So when Audi was kind of emerging and we would do that show and it would be augmented by sponsorship money. And then of course it would go on a literally market by market syndicated model to the 211 different DMAs around the country. So literally the ABC affiliate in Philadelphia would take the, take the, the show. So it was, I was, when I was younger, I was, you know, this was 1989, 1990, I was calling each affiliate individually to the program director to see if they would take the television show. And it was the market by market. And we had this big binder and I'd write it down. And if the person passed or whatever, then you would start to accumulate. Well, of the 211 DMAs, we were able to get 185 of those DMAs. And now that collective reach started to justify the partnership money. So, I mean, you couldn't self-publish. It didn't exist. Yeah. And so you, I kind of learned, you know, when we were sending out the beta cam tapes and the three quarter inch tapes, you know, via FedEx of those days. Now I can make it, I can upload it. I can publish it. I can monetize it. If I have enough views on my platform, I can self promote it through my social handles. I mean, what a gift this is to be yeah. able to do it. So I like the Wyatt dailies of the world. And I like the fact if you're confident to try to get out there and make something, especially if you have access to, or something that no one else can get. If yeah. you've got a, a personality that no one else has access to, if you've got a certain style that no one has access to. And I look at Kurt Morgan for a while when he did Art of Flight and he did the John John film, he has a start. His, his cinematography is at such a level and he's yeah. always innovating in that space. So I, I would love any young filmmaker, like you said, to just take that chance. The main piece, if I give anybody any advice, keep your TRT or your total running time as digestible as possible. So try to start with a three, four, five minute clip and get a sense for your engagement rate on that clip, then see how you can grow from there. If you have a, a higher attention CPM, almost like an a, a CPM, if you will, if I have a piece of content that has a higher engagement than just a click, I know that has more value. So I will take a longer engagement on a, on a, on a TRT, then I will more reach. I don't care if 150,000 people click on it. I care if 15,000 watch it all the way through. Yep. And yep. especially now, if you can't plug in mid rolls and things, you have to make sure you see that whole branded piece. And yeah. I look at podcasts and I was listening to yours the other day. And I think one of your partners is whoop, maybe the, yeah. the I mean, and I just love how you did that with whoop. If you look at a guy named Rich Roll, Rich Roll has a podcast as well. Yeah. And you're, it was very interesting how you did that whoop uh, in-show piece or when you went to break and you did a really good job. Rich Roll does it really well. You did it really well. 
I almost feel like it's still part of the podcast. So I'm not going to fast forward in my car. I'm not going to click out. I'm going to listen it through and through. But it's so critical that you do that. And you did it really well with Whoop. And you say, hey, and it goes under your wetsuit. And so you're giving a real world example to it. And so that's where, you know, I see how, how podcast does a great job is weaving in that brand, weaving in that, that partnership in such a seamless, authentic way. And I think the, another little last piece to this is going back to how a film gets distributed or a documentary or a series gets distributed. Now that networks or platforms or streamers are not going to pay a high percentage license fee for an exclusive right, you want to be able to say, this film is streamed wherever you get your content. So podcasts, you might say, yeah. you know, watch Surf or listen to Surf Splendor wherever you whatever podcast player you are, wherever you get your podcast, yep. kind of like the bookstore, wherever books are sold, you know? So now I think if you have a documentary, wherever you stream your documentaries, this will be there. Totally. So it's important that if you're not going to get the premium exclusive money, then at least get it as broadly distributed as possible. So I have no friction. If I go to X platform, it's going to be there. Yeah. And the title is searchable and it's easy to get to and I'm in. So that's wherever books are sold, wherever you get your podcast, wherever you stream your content. The, broad, the most frictionless way to see it or engage with it and the deeper engagement on the film, the higher the value of the property. Um, not to make this about me, but a couple of things that you said there. Uh, that's why I called the show Surf Splendor was because we were first in the market and I wanted people who were getting into podcasting when they type in the word surf for us to be the first thing that popped up essentially, you know, not have to think and remember the name, just type the word surf. And even if they're looking for something else will pop up first. Yes. So that, that you're, you reminded me of that, but also in terms of a small audience listening all the way through, um, I'm sure you're aware of that old article by Kevin Kelly, it was called a thousand true fans. And that's really how we built the business because we realized super early on we're never as a podcast going to compete with true crime True and true. true. And I talked to these large ad agencies and they're selling ad space for podcasts, true crime podcasts that get millions of downloads per episode. And it's like, there's no point in us aspiring to be them. But what we have is this super motivated, engaged yes. audience. Yes. And so that Kevin Kelly article is if you can activate a thousand people it can be more meaningful than an inactive million people. So just focus on them. And the other benefit of, uh, about having a small audience is you can really speak to individuals. Yes. So keep crafting the content for that thousand people for this niche market, be the leader in that niche. And thankfully our number is more than a thousand and it'll, but it'll never be a million, no. you know, but it's enough to build a lifestyle around and a business around and all that sort of thing. Sure. So. That, that Kevin Kelly article, we should almost link it or something, but it's a, it is so true. I think with your podcast also, if we're all, we're all in this space, there's only, I always say there's only five of us doing this. I say that in tongue in cheek, but we all know yeah. each other. Right. And so if you have a, if you are, you've kind of set this town hall, you're that this coffee shop that we used to go to in a small town where we would hear the stories and what's going on. And when I listen to the Kyle Laughlin uh, podcast, because he and I and his team are talking about uh, doing a live stream potentially with Mavericks. And, and if that could work out great, you know, but we're, you know, in early conversations there, but I hear how he looks at things. And so I love that the Chris Cote way back in 13, 
you're that coffee shop where we can come to in the morning. And I think you publish every Wednesday, don't you? We try to. Yeah. Yeah. So is consistency. I know that I'm going to get a notification. I know it's going to pop up on my podcast player. And at least I'm hearing something that's going on in the space because where else am I getting my info from? You know, nowadays, yeah. Nowadays nowadays, it's changed a lot. Yeah, exactly. Um, Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, can I ask you, I want to ask you about a few of the projects that you guys are working on. Sure. You keep referencing the Mavericks. Uh, I guess it's going to be called the Mavericks Invitational now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maverick Ventures is the name yep. of the brand. Elizabeth Cresson, you referenced earlier. Yep. She's the one who's heading it up. Yeah. Why has this event been so fraught with peril in the past? Probably have to pick my political, um, the, the politics of it a little bit. And if you want to deflect, I know that um, Elizabeth is probably the better person to answer these questions, but if you have any insights, great. If not, deflect them. I think I can speak to a little bit recently of what uh, over the last five, six, seven years. So Mavericks, of course, is it's iconic. We all get that. There's Nazare, there's Mavericks, there's Jaws. We we get that that feel. So it's, I mean, it's iconic, especially in in California or Half Moon Bay or Northern Coast. Um, Company called the Cartel came into play in 2016-ish or so. And they came in with a lot of fanfare. And I remember when I was at Red Bull, we sat, I actually sat in the pitch meeting with a guy named Griffin, I think was the guy that was running it at the time. And so Griffin came in and he had his entourage and we had our senior team and a really, really close friend of mine, a guy named Scott Bradfield. And Scott Bradfield, Scotty, ran all content for Red Bull Media House for years and years. And I used to always have a saying with Scotty, I would sell it or distribute it and he would make it. And I always say, don't make something that I can't sell. So don't make a piece of content that doesn't resonate. And I won't sell something that you can't make. We'd have brands come to us and say, we want to do another New Year's No Limits, or we want to jump something, or we want to do something. Well, that's off brand for us. So we always had this kind of this golden rule. I would only sell what he could make and he would only make what I could sell. 
So Griffin came in and we had the meeting and nice enough, likable guy, but his image, his vision for Mavericks was bigger than what the platform could support. And we all kind of knew that. And so it was a little bit of the enthusiasm of the uninitiated. He wanted to make it more of a spectacle. He wanted to, to drive it into a space that it wasn't going to fit. And so, you know, we listened to him and I remember walking out of that meeting and kind of going, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I think his vision is a skew from what reality is, what it can be. And I believe we then on Red Bull TV, we aired it, um, I think on Red Bull TV. I do know that in 2014, it was part of an NBC series that we did. We were doing a series with Sal Masakela and I think it's Salama now, if I get it right. So we did a series of, uh, we did a series on NBC called Red Bull Signature Series. And myself and a guy named Sean Eggert, who's now over at Under Armour, Sean and I were the early guys. We were the two guys that took it to NBC to pitch it. Mavericks was one of those one of those shows. So in 2014, we did Mavericks, and I think it was a it's a strong telecast, and I think that made Mavericks feel strong. Then the cartel came in and they disrupted the brand. They disrupted the Mavericks brand. Then I believe uh, the WSL stepped in in 2017, acquired the rights from Cartel. Cartel was going through some financial challenges. There might've been a bankruptcy involved. So I, I don't know if Mavericks is fraught with issues outside of there was a, some bad players that took it over that tainted the brand. And I'm hoping if we can pull back to the purity of what it is, and I think Elizabeth has done this well. I mean, she was 19 when she started going to the here, going to the uh, state of California and the coastal commission and all that to get the right. So she put a lot of time, she's only like 22 or 23 years old. She put a lot of time in there to really nurture and bring back the rights and make sure that it was an a, a, a equal playing field for 12 men, 12 women, equal pay. And uh, I'm hoping that we can kind of close the chapter on how Mavericks became too commercialized or be, tried to become something that it was not with at the hand of cartel and bring it back to something that's that can be more sustainable and uh, and maybe not big, but not too big where it'll collapse. And I, and I, and that's why I, I'm hoping that we can put, but we're being very gentle with it. It's a, it's a, it's a sacred event that properly run and properly communicated can live on. And she has a five-year rights to it. So we're stewards of the partnership side. And I'm very cognizant of how important that is not to be, not to mess it up and to have it. We don't have a, we don't have a second chance. If we screw up Mavericks or Mavericks are screwed up again, I don't know where it'll go. We have a, a, a clean slate to bring it back. And I hope we all do it in a really diligent, respectful, kind way to get it back to where it should be. Um, this is an opening line from an article that was written in the Half Moon Bay Review in January, 2020. It says, Elizabeth Cresson is a senior at Georgetown University. And while she grew up in the area, she's not closely tied to the close-knit surf community. And she said that she first started thinking about running a surf contest at the Coastside break when she heard that cartel management was filing for bankruptcy. Um, the article goes on to explain some of what you're talking about. But my question is, if you didn't necessarily have the confidence in Griffin, what about Elizabeth gives you confidence that she could pull off what the WSL hadn't been able to and other people that are actually in the surf space? So you really, by the way, really, really good questions. Thanks. Um, 
I think Elizabeth's tenacity makes me feel that she can pull it off. I also know she has heritage in Half Moon Bay. Her family has roots there. The fact that she went through all the um, all the consistency and all the meetings and all the permits to pull it off is is strong. So if Elizabeth did not not much more than bring it to where it is now, and now we can plug in the professionals from water safety, even to Paul Tablieb, who, like I said, I, I believe you know. Yeah, Paul's a full pro at this. You know, he did X Games for 16 years on the motocross side. He knows what he's doing. And so if we can surround ourselves with like kind folks that have done this, but we can be respectful and gentle of it and not try to overscale it too quickly, I think we have a chance. So I think, thank goodness, Elizabeth stepped in to go through the arduous ego swallowing siege of the consistently to get the permits back. Thank goodness she did that. And now it's in the hands of, you know, can we step in and, and whether it's Paul or the event organizer, who it may be to make sure we pull it off. Is Jeff Clark still the event organizer? Jeff Clark is not the event organizer, although there's a relationship that he has with, with Paul. Got it. Um, I, for better or worse, I think a lot of, uh, surf contests are stymied by local surfers, you know? And so, um, for a lot of different reasons. A lot of it's just, we don't want to bring publicity to the spot. How are we going to be properly represented at this spot and all that sort of stuff. But I feel like a lot of times in surf film anyways, the best films are made by non-surfers or people who weren't so ingrained in the space that they can't kind of see the more global benefit. Um, So I'm hoping for the best. I would love to see an event there. I'm not a local, but I would still love to see an event there. Um, This is being promoted as, quote, featuring women and true gender equality, end quote. What does that mean? So part of the permit process has been, or the mandate that has come down is that we have to, no, not have to. It is important to make sure that there's half men and half women, that the prize money is the same and that they both surf on the same day. And that, that, you know, so it's as equal of a playing field as possible. There's some, as you get it, you know, there's some amazing women, big wave surfers out there. And I think it's an opportunity to showcase that. And whether we run Mavericks on the biggest day that there is, or whether we run Mavericks on one of the best days that there is, and there's a big difference between best and biggest, you know, if it's a clean, good, sizable day, and it makes for, and it's men and women equally, same day, same setting, same, you know, same swell, that's what's important about it. And then same prize money. So there'll be um, uh, gender categories though, men competing against men, women competing against women. Yeah, so I believe that is to be the case. Elizabeth will have a okay. little better take on that. Got it. Um, moving on, Death and Taxes, the Sonny Garcia <laughs> documentary. You did your this research. Is, you did your research. This is, this is super exciting. And it's wow. also something that we've been hearing about for years. Uh, I was not convinced that this would ever come to fruition. <laughs> um, when did this project begin? Who's behind it? And when did you get involved? Great stories. It's uh you make, you make me laugh because it's so true on many times. So a, a director named uh, uh, Michael, or we call him Obo, he, uh, he started the film 10 years ago, I think it was. And, uh, you know, he's been in market, you know, he's done several different projects and really super neat char- character of a guy. So he's had we've the had, film. We've had him on the podcast as well, yeah. by the way, with just, the Nathan okay. Fletcher uh, film. Then, there you go. So, you know, yeah. yeah. 
So he's just, just a, I'll call him really colorful. He reminds me of kind of Sammy Hagar in a way. And so, um, so he came to us via the guys, a gentleman named uh, Henry at Adventure Entertainment. He came to us and Henry said, he's got the film. It's 90-ish percent done. What are your thoughts on it? And I, of course, watched the 10-minute rough cut trailer that's out there or the, well, the nightmare trailer, but the clip that's out there. And it's good. It's, it's intense. You know, and we all know that Sonny, you know, tried to take his own life back. I think it was. Uh, 2019 or so, I think it was. And so April, uh, 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Perfect. There you go. So, you know, and it's, and it's challenging. The story is there getting it to mainstream market is the, is our goal. And so we have a window of time that we have the exclusive distribution rights to take the property to market. So I've been pitching everybody from HBO through the Netflix, through down through epics, uh, Showtime, BET. So when I was at when I was at NASCAR, I ran all unscripted television. So my role was to take any piece of content that was around NASCAR and push it out to mainstream markets. So you'd have the race broadcast, which was the lap by lap coverage on Saturday or Sunday, Saturday evenings or Sunday afternoons. And that was the race. Anything else was under my jurisdiction. So the relationships are there with the broadcast partners of the networks, the streamers. So on that one, we're taking out literally on a platform streamer basis. And it's, you know, a particular Scott Mills at BET is the head of BET. And so you take it to his particular network, showcase it. This is what we have. It's 90% done. Here's what we're looking for, network or platform, a little bit of finishing dollars to finish it up and a small licensing fee so it can get out there in the market. That way, Michael can make a little bit of his investment back and the project gets seen. So um, I'm doing that because if somebody doesn't get it out there, it will never, it'll never be known that it's out there. And it's, it's, that's not easy. It's not easy pitching these types of projects. Um, And that project is, you know, it's like uh, the Andy Irons project. I mean, it's, it's sad that it's, you know, it's kind of where it is. I remember, I think the Andy Irons, you know, uh, was 2010 ish or so, I think when, when that occurred. And, and so, you know, the sunny pieces is, is tough because of where he is now and, and all that happened, but he is such a colorful character and such a polarizing character. So I hope that comes out. But again, I don't, doesn't matter how charming I am. In my outreach doesn't matter if I have the Rolodex, it doesn't matter if I, you know, have the right person, if the piece of content doesn't resonate with that network or that platform at that time, they're not going to acquire it. So can we make it a little easier where it's less, you know, it's only a little bit of money to finish it and a little bit of a license fee and it gets seen and gets made. That's a, it needs to get made. So how do we get it made and then worry about the other things? Cause if we don't at least put it out there, we never know. We tried at the end of the day, they may, you know, 20 different platforms or 20 different network execs, programming execs may pass on it. Okay. Say la vie. We, we tried. And so, so that's how I look at it. So we have a short period of time that we're taking it to market and, um, but it's, you know, it's a node and then it's the link and then it's a follow-up node and then it's another follow-up node. I mean, it's, I always have a phrase I use all the time. I used it before earlier in the podcast. It's an ego swallowing siege to try to get yeah. a piece of content seen. So, what is the final 10% that needs to get made? Michael will know better. I think it's trying to bring closure or conclusion to where Sonny is now. How do we tell the, the back end of that story? Got it. Yeah, it's delicate. Um, 
for Super listeners, dope. just to bring them up to speed, you referenced it, but um, the surf world's kind of been hushed about the incident in April, 2019, but it was reported to be a suicide attempt that he narrowly survived. Um, he was in a coma for four months. And so that's left him in a uh, very limited capacity. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea what the prognosis is uh, for his recovery or where he's at now? I, I don't. And I think purposely from a self-protection standpoint, I don't want to know. Okay. I, I, what I have found is if I'm pitching a project, the more agnostic I can be against the project, the better chance I have pitching it. Not Mavericks, for example, I have affinity for that. But when it comes to a piece of content, I have to put it out there in the most generic, unbiased way as possible. And the content has to speak for itself. So I don't know the prognosis of where he is because if I did, or I really got into the weeds on that, I'd have more of an emotional tie to it. The content stands on its own. And then, and Michael will know the kind of where, how we would finish it in the backstory. You know, I, I, I say to this, you know, we'll be in a, I'll be in a, I'll be in a pitch meeting. And I'll be there maybe with a young filmmaker or somebody that I'm kind of coaching along. I do a lot of mentoring with these younger guys trying to get a project in the market and we'll go into a network pitch. And, you know, whether it's old days with true TV or with spike or any one of these, you know, networks that were around for a period of time through the Viacom family, we go in and we pitch a, pitch a piece of content and we'd have the right people in the room and we'd pitch it. And they'd say, you know what guys, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit our air. That's the phrase they would use. It doesn't fit our air. I understand. We'd walk out and the people I'm pitching it with or the filmmaker, whatever, would would get all worked up. I can't believe that. I would watch it. I can't believe they passed. They're not seeing what it truly is. I can't believe they passed. I said, you know, yes, you can't believe they passed because you made the darn thing. Right. But they are they are they are in charge of their platform to drive revenue, viewership, and they know what works. And they're not going to take a risk. And just as much as I say, brands want to take a stance of saying no initially, network execs are notorious for wanting to say no. They want to sit back and see. Not very few of them want to take that risk. And so, I mean, I mean, the amount of times that projects were passed on. I remember I, I pitched a project um, in NASCAR in the early days. And I mean, I couldn't get anybody to take it. I was in New York and LA and I was pitching it like crazy no one bought it. And literally six, seven months in, I was down to my last meeting. I was in New York and I got in the cab and I, it was a rainy day. And I was like, I don't have it in me to go walk into this room and pitch this series about a uh, look, you know, uh, basically a, a live uh, 48 hours later, all the raw audio that goes on with the drivers and they're cussing and they're telling what it is. I don't have the energy to go in and pitch it. And I went in and pitched it and they said yes in the room. And so that type of just, you got to keep pushing it. One more pitch. So back to rounding the story out, I try to stay neutral in what the project is. All I need to do is showcase, hey, here this is. If you have a few minutes, look at it. If it resonates with you or someone on your team, then we can talk more. If it doesn't resonate, then there's nothing more I can do. Yeah. The reason I think the prognosis or Sonny's prognosis is important is just because it really dictates how the film ends, you know? It does. Um, And whether it's worth waiting a year or two to really finish the film. Um, but I will, I watch that 10 minute sizzle reel. It's phenomenal. I mean, it's so captivating. I was riveted and 
I'm curious to hear what you're most compelled about by this project. And I'll start by um, saying what was compelling to me. I don't know when Mark started filming, but he has interviews with Brock Little, Mm -hmm. Buttons, Mm -hmm. Reno, Mm -hmm. Marvin Foster, Andy Irons, Derek Ho. Mm -hmm. Um, When they were sharp, vibrant, you know, uh, speaking with a lot of, you know, it just it, when they were young, essentially. So yeah. he's probably been filming this for over 10 years. That's, I would that's exactly correct. And probably presumably continuously. So it's not just 10 year old content. It's probably still some real current stuff. So you cover a lot of eras of Sonny Garcia and his influence on the surf world. Um, that was what was most compelling to me. And certainly the events in 2019 mm-hmm. make it more poignant, but what do you, what did you find most compelling about the project or why are you so adamant to be behind it? Again, I think he was a misunderstood, okay. um, you know, he was, he was, yeah, he was a rascal. Um, and I think he was misunderstood, but I think he also stood up for what was right about certain things. And, you know, did he, you know, was he, yeah, he was, yes, he was colorful. Did he have an edge to him? Yes. But he's just going to be, lost we're not going to remember who, who you know who who sonny was in his in his height and i think that's sad and so i think yeah. that he he his legacy deserves to be told and i, I think if you there's very i don't know if there's you know he's of course had run-ins with people but i think most of us want to see his story told and told in a in, in the right way i mean the guy was well, you know you know he's a he's a legend and, and it's I think largely we, told, it's largely told through his own voice. I mean, yeah. his interviews with Michael yep. and he's super candid from what he I've is. seen in that. It's, he is. it's pretty amazing. And I think if you look at the market and we say, you know, if there's a suitor, a network or platform that sees value in it, would we work with that platform on the sensitivity of the ending? And, you know, is there um, suicide prevention. Is there things, is there a story that can be told that can, that can come out of this? And so I think that's where it's, it's an incredibly delicate project, but I guess I'm at the point of my career, you know, 52 years old, been doing it a long time. I, we need projects like this to be able, someone's got to take it out there and someone's got to care for it. And I think that's where I look at it. And if it doesn't go somewhere, then it doesn't. But at, at the end of the day, I know we tried. It absolutely has an audience. And I, yeah, I just, I look forward to finding who that is and yeah. being able to see the completed film. And I'll just speak completely subjectively based on my own opinion, but I'll share it with you and our listeners. Um, as much as I love Michael Oblowitz and his work, yeah. he could use some polish. And so I'm glad that you guys, I was glad to see that you're the ones who are involved with him. Cause I'm like, man, that extra, that final 10% yeah. can make it three times better. I you know, yeah. like his, that film um, sea of darkness that was never actually released. The content is so compelling and the interviews are so great, but it's just, it's just, it's almost like over edited with flashes and bangs mm-hmm. and all this mm-hmm. that it's just, it almost gets in the way of the story. Yeah. And so somebody to come in in that final 10% and polish it, I think would do wonders, even though I haven't seen it. Yeah. And I think Michael, you know, we had the calls with him. It, we, it moved very quickly. I, you know, I guess if, uh, you know, if I have, you know, one of my 
I move, if something comes across our desk, I'm going to move quickly to secure the rights to it or secure our relationship in it. So we had one or two calls with Michael and I moved very quickly to say, if you want to do this, Michael, you want me to take it to market, I'll do that. But we have to get an agreement signed. We have to do our due diligence, blah, blah, blah. So we moved very quickly on that. And so my relationship with Michael is really strong cool. uh, because we moved, you know, we, we, I basically said what I was going to do. Now I'm at the mercy of, will the industry see value in it? That is something I cannot control. I can only showcase it the best I can and hope some programming exec on some platform sees the value in it and we can make the numbers work to finish it and have Michael make a couple of bucks basically to recoup part of his investment cool. and get the film made. This is not a, this is not a film where anybody is trying to make money. It's a film where we're trying to, Michael recoups a little bit of his money and we finish it. Okay. And at the end of the day, we know we've done something. I'm right? excited. I, I have faith. I'm optimistic. <laughs> send, send some positive juju our way on it. So, uh, well, yeah, please, um, carry on. Cause I'm excited. I want to see it. Um, the final project of yours that I want to talk about is, um, I guess it's the McGillivray Freeman films. Is that also the Dana Brown project? Yeah. So I can speak to that kind of real quickly. So, um, Marty Hoffman, of course, Hoffman fabrics and, you know, so Marty's, you know, Marty's dad was flippy and his uncle's Walter. And we know the legendary family, the Hoffmans. So Marty, this is about a year and a half ago or so came to us in a group and said, I want to make a series of films that an anthology on surfing. And I want to do, I want to give back to a sport that has given myself and my family so much. And so Marty stepped in and said, let's go make a couple of these. And so um, in the early days, we had some uh, kind of consulting with Dana on it. And then the project moved and it became really Marty's company, Marty's deal. So Marty Hoffman, is getting into the studio business and he has a company called tin can studios and i think the story was there was a beach in capo beach that had tin cans on it and so there's a story there he'll tell the story uh, better than i but so tin can studios is the studio that that is making the film and the first it's a multi-part series but the first film is on lifeguards and uh it is you know cranking through editing right now again it will debut in hawaii at the Hawaii theater on June 21. And uh, that's the first of the film. We didn't have a second film, which is called beach road. It's a basically the Silicon Valley. It's the start of how surfing was Bruce Brown and grubby Clark and all the crew that got it off the ground and the, you know, Severinsen and, and all the founding fathers, if you will. So that's the second film. And then there's a film on women in surf. And so Jim Kempton, who you may know the name, Jim was the editor and chief, I was joking with Jim the other day, we were in a, on a, on a, on a, you know, we were going to Olakai for a pitch. And, and I said, Jim, you know, at one point in your career, you were probably one of the most five most powerful guys in surfing. And we were joking. So Jim's the writer, Marty's the support behind it. Uh, Adventure Entertainment is the theatrical distribution company on it. We're the partnership team along now with McGillivray Freeman. So Greg McGillivray and, you know, founded McGillivray Freeman with Jim Freeman back in 72, maybe it was. And uh, so they've done, you know, 40 plus IMAX films. They're a legendary, big time, fully legit production company. Sean McGillivray, who runs the day-to-day operations for McGillivray Freeman, uh, who's a friend of mine and, and you know, as, has the company or runs the day-to-day. So Greg's involved from an editorial standpoint, giving the fit and finish to what the film is. Sean and I are involved taking it to market and 
pulling in partnerships to support the film. Again, augmenting some partnership dollars with the theatrical dollars, with the platform dollars to tie all that together. Marty's look at this again is I want to tell a story that might not have been told. And so the lifeguard film is, is super strong. And uh, so we have stepped in, you know, Greg McGillivray and Sean said, you know, we're only going to be involved if we can make it as, as best as we can. And so that's proper English as best as we can. Um, yeah. As strong as we can. <laughs> so that's where McGillivray sits. So I, so Sean and I talk on, a, you know, every couple of days about partnerships. Uh, Henry from Adventure Entertainment has it. Uh, there's been conversations with other platforms. So will the, it will get seen. It will be, you know, uh, on this, you know, in theaters, Marty Hoffman will be the executive producer. His name will be on the screen and we will get it off the ground. And then can we plug in beach road, which is almost 80% done. Can we finish up beach road? Can we do women in surf? Can we keep going? Can we make this, this anthology where we start to really tell these stories at a high level? You know, it's an experience very, very expensive film to make. And it's funded. Um, and of course, augmenting that, that funding, but it's, again, it's, it's being made and it will be released. Whether we have one sponsorship dollar or not, it will be released. That's no way to build a business model, but at some point you have to, you have to get it done. And yeah. that's where we sit. And so I'm really excited. And I, lo I love working with the McGillivray Freeman guys. They're, you know, they're legendary in, in it. But uh, you know it's hard, even for them and for us. It's it's a it's a tough project, and you know you put all you put some of the best guys in the room being them, and it's still a challenging sell. Well, is each film uh, feature length? We're wrestling with that. Um, if you ask half the group, they want it to be. If you ask the other half of the group, such as myself, I want it to be a shorter, more episodic feel where we can put out, you know, there used to be the magic number of a TRT it used to be like 44 minutes. So you could plug in commercial time, right? Now that number has shifted. There's really no standard TRT to something. Can we make them more in the 60 minute range though? So that kind of fits more of a traditional kind of an hour dockish, and then spread it out and do more of them. Yes. I think that's important. You know, one of the ideas that Jim Kempton has is about the healing powers of water, the healing powers of surf. Uh, one of the ideas that Jim and the team have is, uh, on the still photographers or the photographers of, of surfing who go out there and get in the heavy stuff to get, to get it captured. So the, the ideas, the concepts are there and I've got a pitch deck that's probably 20 pages long with all the different episodes and, and how they all break down and all the characters and everything else. Um, if we can make them more digestible in a little bit shorter feel and make four, five, six, seven, eight of them, that's the ultimate goal. It's hard. It's, it's yeah. a little bit of a niche genre I, and we're trying I, to do it, but you know, with us and McGillivray and Marty, maybe, maybe it can go. Six episodes, 60 minutes each on Netflix would be perfect for something drive, like this. Drive, you know, everybody goes, Oh, it's like drive to survive. You know, when I yeah. was at NASCAR for years, we tried to do a drive to survive. It's, I mean, they, the fact they pulled that together, together with Liberty media, who of course acquired F1. I mean, drive to survive is the, is now what they've, they've set the bar for sure. Yeah. You know, a, a, 10% version of that on the anthology of surf. I think if I was going to say anything, it would be uh, us as a group, meaning the whole kind of surf lifestyle community as a group, if we can put energy behind making these projects, or if we can have celebratory directors come in and do one of the episodes. So we all kind of pull the wagon the same way on doing these. 
And we all benefit from the story being told. That's what I would love for this to see, a little bit more of kind of a crowdsourcing involvement in making these films from a directorial standpoint. The yeah. first one's being directed by uh, a guy named Luke, who was an editor at an agency that I worked with for a, a while. And uh, Luke's an, a phenomenal editor and a director on this, and this will be kind of his directorial debut. And so that, but he's being mentored by Greg McGillivray, one of the top guys in the business. So yeah. I love that juxtaposition. Now the next film, can we find who would the director be and, and move on from there? So I would love nothing more than for Marty to stand there and say, I want the community to support, let's go make these and let's have people involved with it. And let's, let's, let's do what's right for the sport and the lifestyle that we all get so much out of but let's tell the right story and not do it from an ego or do it from a commercialization standpoint. Let's get the stories told. What I liked about that sizzle reel was the themes that were selected for each individual episode. Um, so often in the surf world, the same stories are just retold over and over like, Oh, let's talk about Andy irons. Let's talk about how great Kelly Slater is, you know, and to pick the surf industry and the, tell the story of the pioneering of the surf industry. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like anybody's told that story. Well, they've told different, like, you know, um, grubby Clark's story. He mm -hmm. has been told a little bit here and there, mm -hmm. but if you guys had the opportunity to go sit with grubby mm -hmm. and all of his contemporaries and yep. really unpack that story, yep. you'd be the first. And it's yep. a huge story, you know? You know I mean, uh, and that was such a pivotal, pivotal time too, when surfboard, polyurethane foam in the fifties, Hobie, just such an important Genesis to tell. Yeah. And I, I was listening to one of your podcasts and I'm going to get the name wrong. So bear with me here. It's Al Merrick's son. I think his name is yeah, Britt. Britt. Am I right? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a, what a great story there is a generational, you know, and there was a, there was a piece actually on discovery plus, I think it's on like the Magnolia network or something I saw about making of a surfboard and it's, and it, and it showcases channel islands. And it's this great little like seven, 10 minute piece uh, about how, how it's made or something, but it's on Discovery Plus. You could just find it there. So good. Second generation, the art form of making the board. So the grubby Clark and the foam and then where it is today and the shaping of it. And um, those are the types of stories that, that, you know, that I do feel need to be told. Now, having Marty is helpful because he can yeah. pick up the phone and get folks to show up at his place down in, you know, still Beach Road down in the. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Kappa. Kappa. Thank you. Had a brain fade there. Uh, <laughs> Kappa, you know, he can, and we, they can show up and do it. And so he has that, he has, he has that credibility and he has that old school credibility that brings to it. And so, yeah, I'm, we've been with Marty on this project for, wow, better part of a year ish going over a little over a year. And it's, it's, it's definitely become a labor of love. Yeah. You know, we're not, no one's, I'm not getting rich off. No one's getting rich off of it at all, Yeah, but it's needs to be told. So, yep. There's other things to make money on so that you can enjoy True. Uh, doing these projects. But uh, by the way, you look at, we look at, you got, we got Mavericks here and then we've got the Sunny Garcia project and you got the lifeguards or the surfing the series project with Marty. All of a sudden I was telling my wife the other day, honey, it seems like I'm kind of falling into this niche that wasn't even planned you know marty called me and said hey you want to do this film with me and, da, da, da. and this was a year and a half ago and now things have moved from there so i'm wonderfully honored to have that place in this business but i also know how 
tough it can be. And I know, you know, there's a lot of people that could be critics out there and go, Oh, is, you know, is it ever going to be made? And are they the right guys. There's a little bit of that. And I just hope everybody's just kind. And we just try to get these things made and get them out for somebody to see. Yeah. I think there's room to do both things to have like these really high art quality passion projects and to monetize them. And somebody will crack the code. And um, I know the WSL struggles with the exact same thing. I think eventually somebody will crack the code. All of these stories are super compelling. Surfing is beautiful. Everybody in the world wants to see it. Somebody just has to crack that final code of distributing it to the masses. You know, I agree. You know, one of my good friends is a guy named CJ and CJ was at the WSL EVP there for a while. He was actually, I was at street league, a skateboard league for a period of time. And then CJ came in and, and, and kind of took the realm, took the reins a little bit after I did. So CJ and I were talking the other day and it's, you know, he started, he's kind of started fuel, if you will, when it was on Fox and he tells a great story, you know, um, uh, David Hill, who was running all Fox sports was basically CJ's boss at fuel. And CJ tells a great story. And he says, you know, one day it's the seventh game of the world series and there's something on fuel and C- and David sends CJ a text or calls him or email, however, and was looking at fuels air during the seventh game of the world series that was on Fox. That's how much David Hill cared about it. And so I do think that these, these projects that we will, we will figure out the code at some point. And it's so easy to do nothing. It's so easy for me to say, you know what? I'm not going to take the project on. I'm not going to take the Sonny Garcia project on because the risk of it not happening is higher than the risk of it happening. And so I, or the, you know, the offset of it happening, but if, if, if we don't do it and we don't keep trying, we will never break the code. Right. Yeah. Well, you're perfectly positioned Thank you. to help do that. Um, just in closing, what surf media do you follow at this point? Wow. Okay. It's a great story. Well, I, so story or question, and now you're kind of catching me off guard because I have my feeds every morning. Of course I read beach grit. I think it's just important to see that and get a feel for it. I, of course, follow the WSL. Um, I have, you know, probably 10 or 15 different Instagrams that I follow. Um, and that's, you know, your podcast is something I, of course, monitor the fuel digital uh, platform a lot. You're kind of catching me off guard. I'm trying to go through do you, my- Do you subscribe think, to any magazines? Do not describe, I do not subscribe to any magazines, no. And among I, the websites that you visit is Beach Grit? The only one? No, I do that. I do, well, I do Surfline. Of course I do Beach Grit and Beach Grit has been just new for me. In fact, I got to be honest. I, I think I discovered Beach Grit uh, by listening to one of your podcasts. I think you had okay. somebody on, or I remember what it was. And so I got into that. Um, and then I think I'm just on enough. I, I got newsletters that there's enough feed that I see that comes through or enough people that I know. Don Meek again is a good friend and he'll send me something. Hey, did you see this? Or so I think there's enough that just, through that communication that I get, um, that I get a, a feel for it, you know? So, but you know, Surfline is, is definitely a go-to. So I kind of do my morning. It's like, uh, I was, I'm listening to a podcast about Warren Buffett right now about what he, he did, you know, and, and, and he, uh, you know, and he would read the paper every morning, you know? So I guess yep. I kind of do my, every morning I spin through it. I spin a lot through LinkedIn. There's a lot of posts okay. there that are in the business. Interesting. Yeah. I ask that question to everybody and I always, and I have since 2013 and it's, 
it's always interesting to hear how it evolves. Yeah. It kind of catches, it kind of catches me off guard. Cause I don't think I really strategically think about it. Yeah. You know, uh, but um, I do notice it's, it's interesting if you don't know what's happening. I think the WSL went through some changes a couple of weeks ago with the WSL studios and it's a, a bummer to see that, you know, having a hard time because it's monetizing content. But if you don't know something's happening, it can be kind of tough because you kind of have to know what's going on. So right. the last thing I need is a network exec to say, well, what about this? And I right. go, well, I didn't know about that, you know, or, totally. you know, I think Vans has the pipe masters back, you know, for the first time in X amount of years, or they, I know they have the trademark to it and they have that back. So these are the types of this info. I think that you just need to try to stay somewhat current. Totally. Well, you can blame surf journalists for that. I mean, the reality is they used to be doing a little bit of digging and sharing those stories. And I think a lot of they, them don't exist anymore. Or they're not employed anymore by any magazines or anything. So they're not necessarily telling those stories. So what I found when I ask people that question of what surf media are you following? There are a lot of people, the common denominators, they're not actively seeking things anymore. Those things are just finding them. That's so they get on Instagram and they follow some stuff and that stuff finds its way to the person. Whereas it used to be, you'd have to subscribe to the magazines, take that time in the morning, open the magazines and read. And so but true. there was journalists feeding it to them as well, you know, so yeah. that it's all just a little bit more, uh, well, again, it's different now. Well, on but, your, on your podcast, it was December 30th, which was the year in review of 2021. I'm going to get the name wrong. Maybe it was a Devin that was saying it. And you guys were talking about Peter Mel's ride at Mavericks. And they were talking about how the board and it was basically the lower one third of the board or the rocker was what helped him make the wave. I'm, I'm, I'm butchering the thinking here, you know, and that he kind of overshadowed his son on the same wave. Well, there's a great little factoid that I yeah. would not have known if I don't dedicate the time to it, you know, and I follow Chris Cote on what he did. In fact, I think he and my wife were schoolmates at, uh, at San Diego Academy down in Encinitas, you know, so amazing. Um, so that's, you're right. I think the feeds do come through and then we all talk, you know, I mean, yeah. we all, you know, every the text back and forth and what's going on. I'm really happy that I'm part of this. You know, I, I, it's, 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 you know, if I was in Nashville, I'd probably be in the country music scene, you know, but right. I'm here in Carlsbad and I'm in the surf scene and right. I try to be a little bring a little bit of a business sense to it. And, Hope it goes. The surf world can use that. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, hey, great connecting with you. I'm sure we'll be in contact um, with any of these projects. Anytime you want to shine a light on them, I'd be more than happy to interview directors, filmmakers, whomever. So stay in touch in that regard. I, I actually will probably, I probably will take you up on that uh, if you don't mind. So I'll send you under separate cover. I'll send you an email on that. But uh, you've been really nice and kind to me. And thank you for taking the time today. Thanks for all the kind words about my work, too. You do a good job, man. Keep it up. All right. Thanks. Thanks, David. Take care. All right.
I have, of course, linked to Campsite Media's website on surfsplendorpodcast.com. And um, they do so much more than surf films. These surf films are just a couple of their small projects. But if you want to poke around their website, it's really impressive, the content that they're putting out and the uh, filmmakers that they're working with. So go check that out. Unfortunately, um, the full sizzle reel for Death and Taxes, the Sunny Garcia documentary, is not available uh, for the public viewing. But Beach Grid actually did an article and a video piece with Michael Oblowitz, um, in 2016, wherein he shows some of that footage. So I've embedded that on surfsplendorpodcast.com as well. So go ahead and check that little clip out there. And the Dana Brown film that Greg talked about, uh, about his father, Life of Endless Summers, I've published on the website as well. You can watch it on YouTube for free uh, by sitting through the ads. So I've embedded that on our website also. And then at the bottom of the page, there is a comment section. If you would like to leave a comment for Greg, you are welcome to do so. I will make sure that he sees it. All right. And, uh, Scott Bass and I published an episode of spit podcast earlier in the week. Chaz Smith and I recorded an episode of the grit that will be published on Friday recapping the correlation between the Will Smith slap and Ashton Goggins slap of Chaz Smith. Chaz is going to explain what it feels like to be slapped in the face like that, among much, much more. So go and get this week's episode of The Grit. And then I'll, of course, be back here next week on Surf Splendor. So until then, this is, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor saying thanks for listening and always encouraging you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and of course, shred on. That way now, not to say I was stalking your Instagram, but I was stalking your Instagram. And I want to say there's very seldom do I want to plagiarize something, but your September 28th, 2020 post, it was so good. I think you were celebrating her birthday and you had such a self-deprecating statement there. I'm just, you know, she's witty. She's this and that. Hopefully she doesn't find out that I'm <laughs> not, not at level. <laughs> yep. Yeah, definitely. The clock is ticking on that. That's uh, so good. I just, I saw that and I was like, you know what? That's, I like that. And uh, oh, it's so true anyway, but uh, thank you for, uh, thanks for doing this. And uh, I also saw that you, um, it's, a, it's impressive how consistent you've been with surf splendor you've been all the way since 2013 i think and i think chris cote was your first one of your first interviews yep that's exactly right and then i mean it's just like consistent all the way through the 18s 19s 2021 into where we are now so i uh typically you see podcasts start they go big for a little while then they wane and there's been no you've been consistent thank you i appreciate you recognizing that and that is my secret power because I feel like, especially early on, you know, I didn't have a skill for it. It takes time to develop the skill. Sure. And um, thankfully, there were no other podcasts. So for the listeners, there was no, it was like they had, if they wanted to hear surf content, they had to listen to me, yeah. even if it wasn't good. Yeah. And I, I always tell everybody else that when people get into podcasting, they'll often reach out to me if they're in the surf space oh, really? and they'll ask for kind of the one oh. 101 on how to do it. And that's the one thing I say, I'm like, consistency is key. Like a, a, just to exercise the muscle, but then B your audience just becomes, it becomes like a familiar intimate relationship and they rely on you and they expect you to be there every week. And that is kind of super important and it's invaluable creating that 
I don't know, that little trust or bond or whatever. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, just showing up. It's probably true in a lot of other businesses sure. as well, but just showing up is kind of sure. key. Sure. So, and I thanks. think, you know, there was a couple, I'm trying to think of if there's another guy that started, he was a creative director at Surfer Magazine for a while and he started a podcast and and uh, and, ke- and kept it going for a while. But again, just your consistency is what I, I definitely applaud. And you guys, I mean, you got some good names on there. I saw Kyle Laughlin's. Uh... And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.